Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Wilhite. He is a professor of Christian theology at Baylor University's Truett Theological Seminary, He's also a graduate of Beeson Divinity School and Samford University. He holds the Ph.D. from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he also taught for two years at Seattle Pacific University before going to Baylor. So, David, welcome to the Beeson Podcast today. Thank you, Timothy. It's an honor to be with you. Now, I've seen you once or twice uh, this year at different conferences, and on a couple occasions we've had a chance to refer to some of your current academic work, and that's what we want to talk about. In particular, a brand new book that you have coming out on ancient African Christianity. Maybe we could start by just saying, uh, tell us what that is and how you got interested in it. Sure. Well, let me take the questions in reverse. Um, I mean, if you're thinking of ancient African Christianity I, I'm neither uh, African, and uh, despite what my kids think, I'm not all that ancient. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I got into this over a pretty long period, several steps. I, I was interested in the early church and in uh, the writings known as the Church Fathers. I was especially drawn to some of the gaps in my own knowledge, like early Latin theology and mm-hmm. where that came from. Um, and the, the more and more I, I got into that material, the more I realized how many of those writers were coming from North Africa. Mm. And so I guess I just sort of by accident backed into the the problem that very little work has been done to take seriously that African context of these writers. And uh, so my my doctoral uh, thesis was on Tertullian, the first North African writer. He was the first made Latin writer, and it was focusing on what what does it mean for him to be African in, under Roman times. A fascinating figure, Tertullian. T- tell us a little bit about him, those who may not be familiar with him. Sure. Well, uh, if you want to know about him, you'd look up a standard reference work, and it would tell you a lot of incorrect facts. Um, it would... <laughs> It would tell you that he was uh, a former lawyer, an ordained priest, the son of a Roman proconsular centurion. Uh, he later converted to Montanism and other sorts of things like that. He, over the last 40 years or so, though, st- scholarship on Tertullian has really just reversed every one of those things I've listed for you. Mm. Um, it, uh, most of that information comes from Jerome, another later Latin writer. But when you start to look into those things, for example, that the fact that his father was a Roman uh, proconsular centurion, there wasn't even such a thing as a Roman proconsular centurion in Tertullian's day. Mm. Um, and so when you start to sort of pull back those layers and figure out what what do we actually know about him? He tells us himself he was not an ordained priest. He does talk about the the what we call the Montanus prophets, people like Montanus himself, Priscilla. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never sees himself as as a schismatic, as someone who left you know the first Christian Church of Carthage and joined the first Montanus Church of Carthage. And so, once scholars have started to re uh, deny all of those misunderstandings. I was sort of left with the study of what what else do we know about him? And all we really know about him is he's writing from ancient Carthage. Mm. He, uh, the idea of Carthage and Africa figure surprisingly uh, prominently in his writings. And so my, my study was to start with him and see what, what can we learn about him given that context. 
And now this latest book has really been another 10 years of study of, of expanding my work from Tertullian all the way through later writers like Augustine and even into the, you know, the, the, the whole millennium of Christianity until the time of Islam. I think I told you I took a doctoral seminar on Tertullian when I was a student many years ago under George Williams at Harvard. And I remember reading him. That's really where I learned to read Latin was reading Tertullian. And I remember his Latin was it's often called fiery. I mean, it, it was it's beautiful in, in a way. It's energetic Latin, uh, mm -hmm. but, but in a way he gave a stamp, didn't he, to that whole field of Latin Christianity. He does. Uh, in, in fact, one of my hopes is that there will be sort of a rediscovery of Tertullian. Um, he's been eclipsed by Augustine, and rightly so, because Augustine is a genius and a giant. Mm. Um, but Augustine is more heavily indebted to Tertullian than most people acknowledge. And Tertullian, being the first Christian to write in Latin, has to veritably invent a Christian vocabulary. So, I mean, yeah. mo most of our sort of King James theological words like justification— uh, he he's the first to use them and give them Christian meaning. Justificatio is the Latin word, yeah. And it may not mean for him what we think of, you know. But, right. but we're still indebted to the the path that he set for Western. So, for example, the word Trinity is not yeah. in our Bible. Yeah, the Latin word Trinitas is first used by by Tertullian. How about that? You you know you you've spoken of Cyprian and Augustine. We want to come back to them a little bit later, perhaps in this podcast. But we speak of both of them as Saint Cyprian and Saint. Augustine. We don't speak of Saint Tertullian. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Because Saint Augustine did not. Uh, <laughs> uh, he again, Augustine uh, only knows Tertullian through his writings, but also the, he reads his writings after reading Jerome. And once Jerome has said that uh, Tertullian uh, broke with the Catholic Church and joined the Montanist Church, well, then he's suspect. Yeah, and that tradition really follows him, plagues him throughout the rest of Christian history. So it's not my job to really, you know, defend Tertullian. He's got problems, but yeah. uh, I, do, I, I, I don't think he was fairly represented. Uh, it, to, to think of him as a Montanist, again, I'm not the only one saying this. Most scholars today who look heavily at this realize that reading him as a Montanist doesn't help you understand him at all. Everything you would say about him in his Montanist period, you can already find in his pre-Montanist period. Uh, so... Yeah, it, it's not. It, he, he's not so much a heretic as he is, as you said earlier, a very passionate, very fiery, uh, ruthless rhetorician mm. who can argue his case very well. And sometimes he uh, attacks other Christians in the meantime to make his yeah. case. And I guess we should remember when we think about a figure like Tertullian and the whole experience of uh, African Christianity, as you've written about it, that much of this took place in the context of persecution and dissent and uh, people were being martyred uh, in the time of Tertullian, right? Oh, exactly. That's one of the, the odd things about Tertullian not being received as a saint is even Augustine, even people like Eusebius of Caesarea, and even Jerome will admit that uh, when, Jer when Tertullian is writing his apologetic works and when he's explaining Christians to outsiders, uh, defending Christians in the face of persecution, I mean, he's one of our greatest spokespersons. Mm. Um, it's just, again, his, his reputation was tarnished later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, we've talked a little bit about Tertullian and his context in Carthage, this great metropolitan center of Roman civilization in northern Africa. How did Christianity first reach that part of the world? Do we know that? We don't know that for sure. There's no one source that documents what happened. 
We have solid evidence for Christianity around 180 in North Africa. And it, by 180, you already have it showing up in, in, in multiple places, even far, far inland from further than what you would expect. So that suggests to scholars that, that uh, Christianity shows up uh, earlier in the second century, perhaps even ties to the first century. Mm. But again, that, that becomes speculation because we had no, no hard evidence for that. Um, so how it arrived. It, it's interesting because all the early Christian sources from North Africa are using Latin. Uh, it was once assumed that it was just simply a daughter church of, of Rome. Um, but again, historians quickly realized that there is something very distinct and unique about the North African sources. Mm -hmm. And so they started looking for other possibilities. Um, in, in the mid-20th century, it was very popular to think of um, close ties between North African Christianity and ancient Judaism. And that would be true for most of ancient Christianity, but the thought was maybe that these are uh, communities that were first Jewish, and much like the pattern you see in Acts, they were then Christianized. Mm -hmm. um, however, the, that theory is not quite as popular today. There's just not as much evidence as we first thought. So uh, the, the real short answer is we don't know. It mm -hmm. looks like there is a something unique about these sources that don't tie them to to Rome in Italy that don't tie them directly to to Greece and other Greek-speaking places. So we probably are best assuming there was a variety of, of Christian voices coming into North Africa from various places. We just don't have one single point where, that we can touch on to say, here here's the origin. You know, we usually think of the Bible being translated into Latin by St. Jerome, but already there was this earlier Latin I guess, version of the scriptures, Italic, as sometimes we call it. Uh, would, would this have been what the Tertullian and North African Christians would have used, or do we know? Well, that's right. And so you'll often, if, if you look in the commentaries, you'll see references to the Vetus Latina, the old Latin, the, the, the version that must have been around before Jerome. That's really a, a construct. We, what, you, what you mean is when you read these Latin writers before Jerome, they have a different translations than what Jerome gave. Um, and, and the vast majority of the writers used to reconstruct the Vetus Latina are these North African writers. Mm. So we don't know for certain that there was a Latin translation that was being used. There must have been some versions around. Writers like Tertullian, you can see, translate directly from Greek, but he also knows that his audience has a a Latin version translated for them that he can refer to. So again, there, there probably wasn't just one. There was probably several of these floating around. What are some things that uh, Christians today can learn from the Africanness of this kind of Christianity? We, we know that uh, today there are not very many Christians who live in that part of the world. Uh, it's largely a Muslim part of the world today. That's right. Especially when I talk about Africa, back to, your, to kind of tie this to your first question, we don't necessarily mean in the ancient times what we look at on the map, the continent of Africa. That in Roman, the Roman period, the, the provinces west of Egypt, but north of the Sahara, were called Africa. Generally, there was mm. a specific province called Africa Proconsularis. So that's right. You, you could go to places like Egypt today, Ethiopia today, and, and there is still a surviving remnant of, of Christianity that can trace its, its roots back to Roman times. Not so with North Africa. And we can get into to why that is and the differences. But yes, this is, this is a tradition that largely died off. Um, and so even though there's not a living Christian witness, you know, comes straight from that ancient tradition in North Africa there today, I mean, the truth is that the 
Western Christians, any of us who come from the Roman Catholic and later Protestant traditions uh, of medieval Latin Europe, we are all indebted to these ancient African Christians. We just normally don't think of them as African because they're Latin writers. So as far as what we can learn from them, we, we are already indebted to them. I mean, I think the question is, the way I would put it is, what, how can we better understand them if we see them as Africans? Yeah, that's um, good. And my book is largely, I mean, a, a, you know, 400 pages devoted to trying to to begin that exploration. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think the short answer is we need a lot more study to figure that out. But if, if you would compare an ancient writer like Tertullian or Augustine to someone like the Apostle Paul, you know, it seems like a, an obvious thing to us today that even though Paul claimed to be a Roman citizen, even though he was writing in Greek and, and th- thought of himself, I mean, he, he, he sees his calling as the apostles of the Gentiles. Today, it's still obvious that he is Jewish, and he, you know, he claims to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. Mm. Um, we would not properly understand Paul if we did not understand his Hebraic background, right? So when he yeah. says words like law, we should, whatever we're going to think about natural law and moral law, we should also, for Paul, we should think Torah, right? Very concretely, that, that Hebrew background. So I would argue that we've probably lost something when we don't listen to Tertullian and Cyprian and Augustine and mm. hear in their words and in their teachings, you know, the, the, the remnant of that, that African heritage. Now, you're a specialist in this uh, period of uh, church history and ancient Christianity, but this book uh, is not written only for specialist scholars. It's it's intended to be an introduction, as you say in the subtitle, to a unique context and tradition, ancient African Christianity. So uh, how would you like folks to learn about this tradition in a way? Yeah, good question. The, because these writers were, as we've already said, Latin writers lumped in with the Latin Western tradition, and in a sense that's correct, um, what's happened is there's no there's no one source you can go to to really get the whole story of ancient African Christianity. There's there's been a good book by uh, a, a French writer Francois Ducray that's now been translated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot shorter than I would like. It skips over some things. There's a few things I disagree with it on. Um, so uh, aside from that one book, the la- the most recent ones before that were all in French from the early 20th century. Uh, one of them was a seven volume work yeah. and it was incomplete. So there's just not there's not a good place to start, uh, and that's that's why I decided to write this book. And as you say, write it at an introductory level. I, I felt like uh, trying to trace from Tertullian, Cyprian, Augustine, and after Augustine into the Vandal period and the Byzantine, and then ultimately the Arabic Islamic period. Um, this all need this is a, all one story, and it mm. and it needs to be told in one place. The writers liked. Augustine and the Donatists of his day, they believe that they're being true to Cyprian and mm. who, who believed he was being true to Tertullian. And the writers who come after Augustine are, believe they're being true to this one, uh, I think we could call it a school of thought. And mm. so to put it all in one place was just long overdue. That's great. Now, you're a prolific scholar and writer. I'm going to mention a couple of your other books, and maybe you can give us a one or two sentence description of them. We've already talked about Tertullian the African, which was your first book, really, I guess, out of your doctoral work. Uh, That's but, right. But then you have a book called The Doctrine of the Church. What's that about? Yeah, that's a book I um, was asked to co-write with a friend of mine named Matt uh, Matt Robert Jensen, not the Robert Jensen, who uh-huh. we sadly lost, but yeah. I like to tell people I wrote a book with Robert <laughs> Jensen, just, just not that one. But Matt Jensen is a systematic theologian, and he was asked to write this book for, for our TNT Clark series, mm-hmm. and uh, they they wanted the book to be 
they, they described it as an upper-level introduction to the doctrine of ecclesiology. So this is upper-level in the sense that we assume you already know what um, ecclesiology is, the doctrine of the church. We assume you already know what, who the Holy Spirit is. It's basic Christian fundamentals. Mm-hmm. But if you wanted to get up to speed on how should we talk about ecclesiology today, what are trends in scholarship, um, Matt represented the systematic side of that, and I represented historical theology for that. And so we tried to put uh, the conversation that the, the church has been having as far as well, trying to understand what do we mean when we say we are the church. Mm. That conversation has been going on for 2,000 years, and it's still a very lively conversation. Yeah. So, again, we tried to we tried to bring to light some of what we think are the most important voices uh, from the past and the present. Now, here's a book with a title that will grab you, The Gospel According to Heretics. What, what could that be about? Yeah, that, well, it's not just a cliche title. It actually is about the gospel and uh, how the, the, the really the doctrine of Christology, how, who do we understand Jesus Christ to be, mm. how that intersects with uh, our salvation, so the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the when it's according to the heretics, what, what I did in that book was I went through um, the the early Christological heresies, all the early major heresies about Jesus, and devote a chapter to each one. So there's one on Marcion, one on the Ebionites, one on the Gnostics, and so on, right up until uh, the 8th century. Um, and I try to to really take seriously in what's happened in recent scholarship is what most people would call revisionist history, where uh, in, in this way of thinking, we don't just trust the traditional sources uh, we already talked about this with Tertullian. If Jerome mm-hmm. tells you Tertullian was a heretic, we don't. We we look for ourselves to see if we if the evidence stacks up. Well, this has even been done for notorious people like uh, Arius and uh, and I mentioned Marcion already. Um, and, and in this way of thinking, these are the heretics are not really evil, wicked people, as they are uh, sincere Christians who, for whatever reason, had a different view of of Christ, and yeah. so. We, we would say deviant. We would today would say as practicing Christians heretical, but in their own time, they didn't see themselves as intentionally breaking from orthodoxy. So I, what I tried to do, that, that's already been done by other scholars. To my knowledge, though, no one had tried to say from that, well, if we did take the heretics seriously and we tried to understand why they said what they said about Jesus, what would we learn from that? And, and especially, uh, what would we learn about our own orthodoxy? since our orthodoxy was forged in the fires of the you know, debates with heretics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't want to give away the ending, but I'm, I believe <laughs> I'm still orthodox. And I believe that anyone who reads this book actually ends up finding the right answers, what we call the orthodox answers. Uh, but it's through a interesting route. We do it through the eyes of the heretic. And one of the things I've, I've been very interested and in, involved in is looking at the history of exegesis, how scripture was received, the reception of the Bible and the history of the church. You yourself, along with uh, Dr. Todd Still, who's the dean of Truett, are editing, co-editing, I guess, a five-volume series on the reception of Paul in the early church. Now, that sounds like a pretty massive project. It has been a big project. I've really enjoyed getting to work on this because this is a project where we ask other scholars to contribute essays, and we that gives me an excuse to talk to some of the best and brightest in our field. And really, both, both New Testament studies, or I guess biblical studies in general, had a real growing interest in how, how were these text received mm. in later centuries. And from coming from the other direction, people like myself who are more historical, uh, historical theology or historians, they're interested in um, how did 
patristic exegesis develop? How were early Christians reading the Bible? Yeah. Uh, and so what we've done is we've taken scholars from, from New Testament and scholars from early Christian history and patristics and, and put them in conversation with each other, focusing on, on Paul in particular. How, how is Paul read by different authors at different times? Well, you're involved in lots of other projects we don't have time to talk about, but uh, I remember you as a student at Beeson, how bright you were, how engaged you were, and it's just wonderful to see that you've gone on and developed that interest in such a wonderful way that serving the academy and serving the church and your students there at Truett as you're teaching uh, church history, you were just a, just got a second left. If you could reflect on your time at Beeson, how, how would you look back on that and how do you think about it? Well, I had a, a wonderful experience at Beeson, so I'm always thankful for my time there. Uh, I think it was very formative for me, not just intellectually, but you know, morally and as a person and spiritually as a practicing Christian. Um, you know, I think I, I'm not sure if your question was really going in this direction, but over the conversation we've been having about all of my my research in historical theology, I do think I can give credit, at least partly, to to Beeson because I think while at Beeson, I I was given a real picture of the the whole church. I came from a pretty narrow Southern Baptist background, and I didn't. I was not exposed to other denominations much at all. Um, and then at Beeson, where it was an intentionally interdenominational and yet evangelical place, that gave me a safe space to explore other traditions and really the whole Christian tradition uh, at once. And so I think that also developed in me a, a, a humility that. Um, if we believe that the body of Christ has many members, then we should be willing to uh, to see the gifts uh, in all those different members, and even those from the past. And so, you know, you couple that with I had some really great mentors and great examples of people who cared for the life of the academy and the life of the church. And uh, again, that just made for an all around great experience for me while while I was at Beeson. God bless you and your good work at Truett, and keep it up, and look forward to seeing you the next time we're together. Thank you, Timothy. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Blessings on you and on the school. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.